Hello, friend, and thank you for tuning in to Climate Change in the Multiverse. My name is Kelly Tatham, and you're listening to the episode The Colonial Roots of the Drug War with Scott Bernstein. This episode was recorded in October 2020 during the BC provincial SNAP election. Both Scott and myself, your multitasking podcast host, ran in this surprise election as candidates for the BC Green Party because we were both beyond frustrated with status quo politics and incremental change. Drug policy was a prominent subject on the campaign trail, and I was incredibly grateful to have Scott as an outlet and resource. As you'll learn from our conversation, the roots of Canada's drug policies are racist, and our governments have been unwilling to acknowledge that and correct them. It is possible for us to have drug policies that not just prevent deaths, but actively heal people. And it's worth noting at this point that more people have died from overdoses in British Columbia this year than have died from the coronavirus. So what we need is a government that's willing to acknowledge its colonial roots and implement corrective policies. Simple, right? Please enjoy this conversation and please stay active. We will have change when enough of us demand it. So tell us then, how is the climate crisis related to decriminalization, drug policy, overdose crisis? Well, I, I think they're all they're all factors uh, relating to colonialism. Uh, for one, uh, they're, they're all uh, things where we we have a, bu- a lot of evidence of the right policies to to do or, or to put in place, but we often don't follow them. And so I think those those two similarities maybe uh, create a, a situation where we, you know, think think about both of these things from basically moral perspectives uh, in, instead of evidence-based perspectives. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Climate Change in the Multiverse. I'm your host, Kelly Tatham, and today our guest is Scott Bernstein. Scott is the Director of Policy at the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. He's a lawyer, a father, and now our very own candidate for the BC Greens in Vancouver, Kingsway. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. How are you doing today with your second week in politics? Well, it's a wild ride, as as I think you know very well. It's a it's a roller coaster, and um, you know the the learning the learning curve is steep, and we don't have a lot of time to go up it. But um, it feels really good. Like I'm really I'm really enjoying uh, engaging in the issues, and just it's a lot of energy. And I'm really I'm really just amazed by the great slate of candidates uh, for the BC Greens this year that attracted so. Uh, that's that's pretty inspiring to me. It is. It's so inspiring. Every time I I have this buildup of nerves and overwhelm, I I reach out to someone or I look around to the other candidates. And I remember we're all in this together. We're on the right side of history, <laughs> and we're stepping into a system that was designed to keep voices like ours out. Ab- absolutely, and I'm really you know I, I I don't really know how other parties internal 
uh, relationships work, but I, I, I'm finding um, it's really great because we're being very supportive of each other. And, you know, people who have more experience are very open and happy to share their experience and tips. And it's just, it's just been great. Like it feels, it feels really good. And I think this is, this is a very important election for us in BC. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one we wanted or planned uh, during a pandemic, but I think it's really allowing us to uh, raise some of the differences between our party and the other parties, which is, is pretty important for voters. Yeah. Had you been thinking about politics before the snap election? Yeah, you know, <laughs> sort of like everybody, I, you know, every so often people are like you should, you should run uh, for politics or something because I'm sort of, you know, I'm I'm opinionated. I'm very, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually uh, American uh, by birth, and so it's, uh, you know, that people have told me, uh, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm uh, more outspoken than Canadians typically are. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I, I'm I'm personally definitely you know really happy to uh, engage in issues and be out there. And people are like, well, you know, and, and I'm you know I, I feel very strongly about a lot of issues that are very important to me. And um, you know, people are like, oh, you should run for politics. So I I thought about it, and then this this opportunity came up uh, with the BC Greens, and I was asked to run, and um, you know, decided decided to jump in the deep end. Yeah, and I think the real, the real question, the real question is like, will this be the last run I, I do or not? Like that's the, I'll have to, I'll have to evaluate that. Like, what do you, what do you think? I, I think we desperately need you in the system. Yeah, I meant about you, but. Oh, about me. <laughs> that's a great question. You know, I, um, I've been thinking about politics for a little while and just kind of getting to the place where like, am I going to have to go into politics because things aren't changing and what else are we going to do? Right. And so I've been sitting with that, you know, well, is this a, a new, a lifetime career? Is this uh, a one month thing, a four year thing? I don't know yet. I'm going to keep feeling it out. Um, my challenge stepping into this role has been wanting to fulfill the role of politician and wanting to play the game properly in that I don't want to make things worse. I don't want to mess things up. I don't want people to be like, who did the Greens bring on this kind of crazy artist, you know? Whereas I know my ideas are, I'm reminding myself that I'm like, the system needs these ideas. We need people who are provoking. We need people who are asking the questions. And so my intention is to, to step into this work with the goal of shifting it. So it becomes different. So it, it it's no longer the responsibility of one person for 50,000 people. I think the whole system needs to shift. And so what my work is, is changing the system. So however that means, whatever that looks for me as a politician or as a storyteller or as an activist, it's always going to be moving in this direction. So I see myself in this place for a while now. And the more I learn about how things have been going and how change hasn't been made. And the more that I'm talking to people on the ground and learning their stories, the more inspired I am to, to, to push harder and to learn more and to, and to, to commit to the change that needs to happen. Absolutely. And, and you're, you're, you're right. Like I feel, I feel like the system is in dire need of change. And I think, you know, any, anybody, anybody who's paying attention to anything around us is seeing that we're, we're in a bit of a inflection point in, in our history and, and in sort of where we are as a society. And, and we either, we either choose to make, choose 
to do things differently um, and, and better and perhaps survive and thrive and flourish. Or uh, I, I think the path we're on is, is not a very healthy and promising one, uh, re- particularly around things around the climate and, uh, and, and our consumption of resources and, and different things that that really affect our well-being and our health and our, you know, whether we're breathing smoky air uh, throughout the summer and whether people have uh, drinking water and, you know, food to eat. I think these are all like really um, important and pressing issues for British Columbians and Canadians and humanity. And so we, we as a species sort of need, need to think about things differently. So I really, I really welcome you being in here and shaking up the system. And I think your, your viewpoint is, is very valid. And I think often, often people, you know, pol- politics has a bad rap because we're sort of used to politicians, you know, acting in a stereotypical way. They, you know, they promise things to us and then don't deliver. They, they lie to us. They are manipulative. And, and if, if more people decided to take the plunge and run and, and take, take back, claim back power for ourselves, the system will be better. Like, like a democracy only works if we all, if we all sort of do our part, you know, our part being learning about the issues and voting and supporting people, but also stepping up and, and taking a leadership role when, when it's necessary in whatever thing. Not, not everybody's going to want to choose politics as the way to do that. But I think, you know, we, we, can't, we can't abdicate responsibility generally for the society we live in. So we all need to learn to be leaders in our own communities in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, because we all have that power and that drive and that capacity. We've just, it's been shaped around us that that it doesn't belong to us. You know, I can't, the only reason I think I've I've felt the ability to go into politics is because I have politicians in my history, otherwise, in my lineage. Otherwise, it's like, who even does that? You know, that's something for these older white men or, you know, I know politics has become a lot more diverse recently, but still the institution is just very static. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work with um, the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition and and how that's prepared you for this role. Sure. And so um, maybe maybe I'll, if I may, <laughs> let me back up a little bit. And so my, my background is... Um, I, I went back to school to get a master's degree in, in my 30s, uh, so a number of years ago. And um, I, I'm one of those older white guys, sorry, but I'm, you know, I like to think I'm, I like to think I'm a millennial adjacent or something, you know, in my, in my. We family. need older white guys too. <laughs> we yeah. need everybody. You know, and I, and I, you know, and I, and I, I try. I, I sort of try to recognize my privilege and make space for for other other voices uh, and promote other voices as much as possible. But so my my background is I went I went back to school um, to study environmental studies, and so I I did a master's in environmental studies, and I was working with communities in Belize on protecting uh, their natural resources, and I sort of at the point I was doing my research down there, I, I, something dawned on me like, oh, I really needed to understand how the legal system works because these, these every, that was sort of shaping what these communities were able to do or not do. And so I decided to go, go and keep going and, and go to school and be an environmental lawyer. 
So um, I came out west here. I, I was born and raised in Chicago area, but I lived in Wisconsin for a decade and went to school at uh, University of Wisconsin for my master's, but then came out here to go to UBC for law school. And so I, I, I actually did an environmental specialization but then um, in my first year of law school, they, you know, they encourage you to go and get a job at a law firm. And I ended up taking a job with um, what, what I, didn't, I didn't know what was the, uh, uh, you know, one of the foremost constitutional lawyers in Canada, Joe Arve, who is, was my mentor and things. And so I started working as a law student on the first real legal case I had, which was the Insight uh, case. And so that was my first introduction really into drug policy uh, back in 2007. And so I ended up working on that case all through uh, the trial court at the BC Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal as an article student and then as a new lawyer at the Supreme Court of Canada. And, um, and so I kept, I, I ended up sort of putting the environmental law piece of it aside and thinking more about drug policy as a lawyer. And so I worked with Pivot Legal Society for three years and, and then ultimately went to New York and worked with a global foundation working with a drug policy and um, like nascent drug policy activists in Africa and then in the UN. And so I came, came back to Canada and started working with uh, the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition which is a uh, based in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, and we're a national coalition of about fifty-five organizations across Canada, advocating for uh, evidence-based drug policies that promote public health, human rights, and social inclusion. And so, um, yeah, so we've I've been doing that doing that for now a bit of three and a half years. I'm the director of policy. Uh, I'm I'm leading some national advocacy around decriminalization. I'm leading an international project called the Regulation Project. Ca. Uh, I'm oh, sorry. Dot org. <laughs> Actually, regulationproject.org, uh, which is a um, international collaboration of organizations trying to talk to people about how we could legally regulate all drugs. It's a really wow. knowledge translation type of pro project among other things. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So tell us then, how is the climate crisis related to decriminalization, drug policy, overdose crisis? Well, I, I think they're all, they're all factors uh, relating to colonialism, uh, for one. Uh, they're, they're all uh, things where we, we have a, a lot of evidence of the right policies to, to do or, or to put in place, but we often don't follow them. And so I think those, those two similarities maybe uh, create a, a situation where we, where we um, you know, think, think about both of these things from basically moral perspectives uh, in, instead of evidence-based perspectives. And so I think, uh, so, so for example, um, you know, we, we could look at um, pro process of legally regulating drugs, for example, and think it from a very, you know, moral point of should we legalize drugs? Should we 
Um, should we make these changes? What's the case for it? Uh, or we could start looking to the actual concrete actions of what does it mean to legally regulate drugs? And so, for example, like who would have access to, if we decided we wanted to legally regulate heroin, for example, who would have access to it? Where would they get it? What would, what would they do? Uh, or where would they be able to consume it? How much would they get? Those those kinds of questions, um, and it's it's similar to climate change. We could sort of you know have a, have a if you ask somebody on the street like what should we do about climate change? It's it's a very broad open ended question. But if we start talking to people about questions of like what's the what's the optimal mix of um, of, of fuel you know like fossil fossil fuels wind solar nuclear like you know just get down to these granular uh, granular level conversations with people about what's the optimal mix and then actually look at the evidence of like well if we put all our eggs in fossil fuel here's what the outcomes are if we choose alternative fuels here's some of the outcomes and then we as a society sort of decide that these are um, these are ways ways we want to go. So I think there's there's similarity in sort of the complexity and um, the complexity of the issues, and also just how we, we sort of tend to engage in them in abstractions rather than in concrete solutions that are backed by evidence. Mm, absolutely. So wh- why hasn't the government been following evidence based research that says that decriminalization? Is, is going to move us forward, is going to help people heal? I, I think, you know, I think a lot of what we have to do is look back to uh, the root, the roots of um, drug policy prohibition, uh, and, and not just in Canada, but sort of globally. Uh, but I'll, I'll focus on Canada for a second. And so, you know, up until, up until the early 1900s, late 1800s, sub- substances weren't restricted at all. You know, you could go and you could buy, there were a lot of, um, uh, you know, tinctures and medications and prescriptions you could get that would have opium or morphine, or they would have cocaine or cannabis extracts. And those were all readily available. People used them to treat different conditions and, and things. And so there was, it was largely un, unregulated, um, People may not know this, but heroin, uh, the word heroin is actually a brand name uh, for a drug called uh, diacetylmorphine, which is, uh, and uh, the brand is, uh, is made by the Bayer company, like the aspirin people. It was marketed as a product uh, for treating coughs and um, like particularly as a cough suppressant. Uh, heroin and and ultimately, you know that brand name like you know like Kleenex or other things ended up being the the term we refute we now refer to to use for diacetylmorphine. But um, so up in, up until like the early early 1900s, these substances weren't controlled. But we decided, particularly, we looked at populations of indigenous people drinking alcohol. Okay, and so that the first restrictions on alcohol focused on uh, First Nations people, and were were prohibiting them from consuming uh, alcohol on reserves. Uh, follow follow that Chinese. We had a lot of Chinese immigrants here helping with, uh, and Japanese immigrants helping with uh, the railroads and building things. They uh, they consumed uh, smokable opium, and so the first uh, the first legislation in Canada around. Um, 
uh, Narcotics was the Opium Act in 1908, and particularly it was based in racism and targeting these ethnic communities uh, for uh, those drugs that were criminalized, drugs that that settlers and European settlers used, such such as uh, morphine tinctures and other things were not covered under that. And so uh, what, what we saw over the next 100 years was a, a gradual escalation in new drugs as they added uh, cannabis in, in the 1920s. Um, they started increasing around uh, the 1960s. They dramatic, you know, in, in response to like the hippies and smoking cannabis and using LSD, they responded by increasing arrests and penalties. And so we, we were left with this system where there was this gradual ratcheting up of the war on drugs uh, to, to a point where, um, you know, to a point where we, where we are today, which is we're, we're still experiencing the colonial and racist roots of the drug war because we're looking at uh, the, the primarily the people who are targeted are indigenous people and uh, black and uh, other racialized uh, people of color in Canada. And th those are the ones, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white guy. If I, if I consume, you know, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not poor. So if I'm, if I'm consuming drugs, it's generally fine. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get hassled by the police. I'm not going to be arrested. It's, it's, you know, typically the police enforcement is, is targeted on uh, the marginalized people of color, poor people generally. And so I think the reason, uh, getting to your question, long, long way around, the, the reason uh, we don't do more is because it's, it's terribly morally uh, loaded uh, topic. And so drug, drug policy is, so not, not only is drug use heavily stigmatized because it's criminalized, but drug policy as a sphere of conversation is stigmatized because it's, it's loaded with morality of this idea that, you know, drug users are bad and, you know, they, they are worthy of criminal punishment and all these things. And, and, you know, originally, again, before before this criminalization, people thought of uh, problematic substance use as a health issue, and they thought people were, you know, it wasn't regarded as a, uh, you know, might have been like a moral failing, but it wasn't a criminal activity. You weren't a, a criminal for doing it, and that and that's where we are today. Is like people people who consume drugs are are regarded as, as being criminal by many people. And, and let me just say this, like, statistically speaking, um, like, drug use is very prevalent. Um, you know, we 90% of all drug use across the world, and this is the UN, the UN statistics um, measuring this is 90% is not problematic use. People use it, they use occasional, they go about their lives, they have jobs, it's not a problem. Wow. Wow, I did not know that about the the colonial racist um, beginnings of drug policy, but I'm not surprised considering all of the problems, it seems, on the planet <laughs> have the same origins. Um, yeah, there were, like, there were race riots in Chinatown uh, in Vancouver that targeted the opium dens. And so they, they, you know, pe people were down there with signs and, you know, torches and like breaking windows and glass. There's, there's some really fascinating photos on the internet of just, you know, Chinatown after, after one of these race riots 
happened there. And, and it, a lot of it, a lot of it was like at the, the core of it was drug, drug use as targeting, targeting uh, Chinese people as being, you know, like, like, like creating that moral situation where they're regarded as like being drug fiends and things. And it's the same, it's the same in the States, largely around, you know, black people and, and sort of the use of crack cocaine and, and this trope around, uh, you know, crack, crack moms and things and, and things, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And so it started as, you know, a way, because there's so many different uses for drugs. There's, there's using it to, to deal with trauma. There's using it to heal. There's using it for recreation. And as people were using it in their different ways and we put these oppressive laws on them, it just aggravated and made the situation worse and worse. Um, I was down at um, Maine and Terminal yesterday and there were some folks there set up selling cannabis and mushrooms uh, and other products. And I spoke with them a little bit and learning about how they're doing this and why they're doing this. And they just spoke very clearly to it being medicine and people needing these tools to heal. And so I feel like so much of the conversation in the public sphere is around decriminalization and kind of just getting back to maybe a, a ground zero from, from everything that we've, we've created. And so what's next? How do we move beyond that? What, do you, what are your opinions on using uh, drugs as tools for healing? Oh, absolutely. And so I think, you know, we have, we have historical records um, dating back 10,000 years or more of, of people using drugs, you know, whether it's uh, cannabis uh, was used for thousands of years or uh, things like peyote or psychedelic mushrooms or other things that just grow naturally. Like people, people use them. It was often it was often uh, in a, a ceremony or a very spiritual relationship uh, to the drugs uh, because they, um, you know, they they bring sometimes bring about a sense of altered reality and connection with the universe in a natural way. Um, opium has been used for for you know centuries as as a pain relief um, and as as a healing trauma. And so I think I think absolutely like we've we've focused a lot on that 10% of people who have problematic use with drugs as like, this is the drug problem and try to deal with it. Uh, but, but people vastly, like even today would use drugs, um, you know, for healing pain, healing trauma. And then, you know, some, some drugs uh, people use for spiritual enlightenment. And that's sometimes that's cannabis. Sometimes that's LSD or psychedelic uh, mushrooms, psilocybin, uh, or, or other substances are, are used in this way uh, personally. They're used sometimes therapeutically. And so um, one of the negative outcomes of the war on drugs has been a stifling in research around how, how drugs can benefit humanity and heal humanity. And so in the, in the 1950s and early 60s, there was this flourishing of research around uh, psychedelic drugs, LSD, uh, LSD, psilocybin, for example, in, in healing and in help, helping people. And when there was a crackdown on, 
on those drugs, the research funding and the support for that dried up. And so we had a dearth of, of research on uh, these substances uh, and, and also cannabis too. Like there, there really has been a lack of research done on the beneficial uses of cannabis uh, as, a, as a medical supplement for trauma, for pain, um, you know, all, all kinds of different things it may help with. And, and so there's, there's now lately, uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, there's been a revival in uh, research around these. And so we, we now have ongoing medical studies of using MDMA and using psilocybin as therapeutic uh, treatments. Uh, MDMA particularly is in, like a, is in a phase three trial in multiple places around the world, uh, looking at it as a treatment for PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder and it's found it's found to be like very very effective and you know you 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 go through a a guided therapeutic session with mdma and you you do this a couple of times and you're healed like it, it's just gone it's it's uh it's quite amazing and and so um uh people now are are pushing very strongly to have this treatment more widely available to people as a healing. Um, psilocybin is is being researched in in places John Hopkins University and other you know major research institutes. It's being researched on a, as a treatment for depression, and so uh, particularly around end of life, um, you know, it helps helps people who are terminal come to come to terms with their impending death in a way that connects them to spirit and nature. And it's, it's quite, you know, powerful. And so in, in Canada, there's now been um, some permission granted to use psilocybin for terminal patients on the island uh, who, are, who, are under, um, who are under the care of a doctor. So that's, that's promising. But I think there's, you know, again, we, we focus so much on the perceived harms of drug use that we we rarely have enough conversation talking about what the benefits are and why people use them have used them for millennia. Wow! Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just it's de- destigmatization and decriminalization is step one, and then step two is recognizing that it, like there are so many beneficial uses. It can heal us faster. We have the tools to heal society. We have the tools to bring people out of depression and trauma and PTSD. Right. And, and, and underlying it, you know, I think, I think when we look at, um, you know, pe- people who are, have substance use disorder or have, you know, uh, concurrent mental health issues and well, like often, often at the root of this is trauma. And so people, people sometimes take drugs to check out, and to cope, cope with a very difficult living situation. I think we need to approach that situation with compassion and with thinking about the underlying factors. Like we can't, we can't just look at the drug use as, as, as the issue. We have to look at like why people are using drugs and treat them, you know, they're, they're using drugs sometimes because they don't have houses, because they were abused as young people, because they're, um, you know, have other concurrent mental health issues because they're poor. Like these, these are issues that are larger societal issues that are the, you know, social determinants of public health that we think about. And, and so, you know, getting, getting it back to the politics, like I think as a, as a society, you know, we have the choices about whether, where we allocate money and, and where, what kinds of things we support. And I think we really need to be thinking more about lifting 
lifting people up and and not not just uh, quick fix solutions or sound bites. We, we actually need to restructure society in a way that that allows us to thrive, allows us to um, flourish um, in in a space that's uh, that's healthier. Absolutely. 100%. You have my vote, if I could vote for you. <laughs> I'd vote for you too, if I could. But okay. no. <laughs> We're on the same page about all of this, and I'm so grateful to to be in conversation with you and to and to and just to know um, that all of the solutions are out there, because I think so many people are looking at the situation in our city and, and to m- many places in the world and feeling hopeless that it's too hard, that the overdose crisis is getting worse, that we can't find people homes. And hearing this and knowing that the, the tools are there and it's just a matter of having the policymakers in place who are coming from a place of compassion, who are trusting the evidence, who are rewriting the racist laws, this, this all can be done. It's all solvable. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a great, really enjoyable having a conversation with you. Good. And so for those of you in Vancouver Kingsway and just in general who want to learn more about Scott and his work, you can check out bcgreens.ca slash Scott underscore Bernstein. And he's on Twitter at Scott underscore Bern. Is there anywhere else people can find you or anything else you want to leave us before we say? I have a, a, Van- I have a Facebook fa- page, uh, Scott number four Kingsway. Um and um, yeah, I, I think I think I just you know I, I, I appreciate uh, anybody who's living in Kingsway uh, voting for me. I'm also uh, very open uh, to discussing issues, and you know if people have questions, I, I you know I'm, I'm trying to really engage. It's very difficult during a pan- pandemic, but I'm trying to engage people as well as I can to hear issues of importance to to people all over the city, and and um, do what I can to help. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks, Callie.